Good morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, please take it and turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 is where we're going to be today. We're finishing this chapter with verses 48 to 59. So John chapter 8, 48 to 59 is our text, and I'll ask you to follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 48. The Jews answered Jesus, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask for your grace now. We pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts and minds and that there would be no unfruitful hearing of the word of God today. We pray, Father, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in our lives and in this congregation. We pray, Father, that there would be no unfruitful hearing of the Word of God. Please keep me from error, Father. Please build us up in the truth, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a life and death sermon. That may sound outlandish to you, but it's true. In fact, every sermon... Every sermon is a life and death sermon. Anytime we hear the word of God, we are confronted with life and death. The only way to live is by the word of God, while sin, which is the pull of every person's nature, always leads to death. So every time, every time, we gather together as a church to open the word of God, it's a life and death setting. And that's particularly true today. Here at the end of John chapter 8, Jesus presents his own ministry in nothing less than terms of life and death. You can see it in the text. Look at verse 51. Jesus promises that those who keep his word will never die. They will live. 
and live forever. It's life and death. And Jesus, in this passage, declares that he's the difference between the two. The only way to live is by Jesus' word. Those who keep my word, Jesus says, will never taste death. And the surest way to die is to oppose Jesus' word. Life and death. Understand, friends, these are incredible claims on the part of Jesus. Jesus speaks absolutely and authoritatively. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Never. These are incredible claims. Who can talk like this? That's actually the question that the Jews ask in this passage, verse 53. Who do you make yourself out to be? That's the right question. Who can talk like this? Who can claim to be the difference between eternal life and eternal death in hell? Who can talk like this? Only God. Only God can talk this way. And that's precisely who Jesus claims to be by the end of the passage. Verse 58 in your Bibles. Verse 58 printed there in black ink on the page that you can read with your eyes. Verse 58 is the clearest declaration of deity in the entire gospel account. Jesus is the I Am. God in the flesh. He's the difference between life and death. Between your life and death. And so these two themes emerge as John chapter 8 comes to a close. These two themes emerge. On the one hand, Jesus holds out the promise of life through His Word. And on the other hand, we hear Jesus ground that promise in His, in his person, in His own divine being. In fact, you could summarize this whole passage around those themes, promise and person. That's how we're going to proceed this morning. What is this passage about? Jesus' promise and Jesus' person. Jesus gives life because he is the author of life. His promise rests on his person. His work rests on who he is. That's the whole passage there, promise and person. And our outline for the text is going to follow that summary. We're just going to have two points today. The first focuses on Jesus' promise of life. And the second anchors that promise in Jesus' person, in His deity, in the fact that He is God. So that's where we're headed. It's life and death, promise and person. It's all anchored and focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's begin then in verses 48 to 51 with the death-defying promise of Jesus' word. That's our first point, the death-defying promise of Jesus' word. As we saw last week, the controversy between Jesus and the unbelieving Jews is increasing rapidly. Jesus called them to freedom through faith in his word, verse 32. But the Jews responded that they didn't need freedom. They were already children of Abraham. Verse 39. Jesus, in turn, did not mince words. They are not children of Abraham, but children of the devil. Verse 44. That's why they seek to kill Jesus. 
because they have not been born of God. Verse 47. So by the time you get to our text, the controversy between Jesus and the unbelieving Jews is white hot. Which explains the outright slur that they hurl against him in verse 48. Listen again. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? For the Jews, that's about the worst thing that you could say to a person. Samaritans were despised because of their mixed ancestry, as well as their misguided worship. And if that wasn't enough, if calling him a Samaritan wasn't enough, they throw in demon possession on top of it. To the unbelieving crowd, Jesus' claims are so staggering that the only explanation in their minds is that he must be possessed by the devil. Only a wicked, despised outcast would dare to question their status as children of Abraham. They, they, they insult him. They slur. They use this slur against him. But I want you to notice at this point how the unbelieving crowd continues to think only in physical terms. All through the gospel, Jesus has put before these people the need for spiritual birth. He has confirmed his teaching with heavenly authority. But all they can do is judge him by earthly standards. You're a Samaritan, they spit. In a tragic way then, the crowd's rejection of Jesus confirms his teaching. He just said, you don't know God. And they prove it by saying, you're a Samaritan. Their rejection of him, their worldly, earthly thinking, confirms Jesus' teaching. They unleash this slur because they do not know God. Jesus, however, does not return evil for evil. This is significant. His defense is both simple and humble. Look again at verse 49. Jesus answered them, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Now, that might sound like a weak defense to you, but it's actually very powerful. Jesus will not engage in this spiteful exchange. He simply denies their charge that he has a demon. And the simplicity of his denial reveals his character. Do you see it there? Jesus does not engage in insults and slurs. He does not return evil for evil. Why not? Because Jesus has come from above. He's not limited to that worldly, earthly thinking. Jesus has come from above. He's the Son of the Father. The simplicity of His denial reveals who He is. And that means Jesus' aim is not to defend Himself or to, or to prove His ministry. Jesus' aim is to honor His Father. He has come to do His Father's will. And every display of patience, every self-controlled response, every moment of clear teaching reveals Jesus' faithfulness to God. This is not a secondary point, friends. This is not a secondary point. Sometimes when we read the Gospels, we think of Jesus' obedience as, as almost like an automatic reply. As though there was nothing to it, really. So, of course, Jesus didn't return evil for evil. He's God, so He's never going to sin. We treat it almost like an automatic reply. And while that's true, theologically, the Son of God could never sin... That perspective underestimates the significance of Jesus' faithful obedience to His heavenly Father. 
I mean, take this scene, for example. The unbelieving Jews are hurling insults at Jesus, and he does not respond in kind. He does not return evil for evil. He's faithful to the Father, and that's a reason for us to rejoice. Why is that a reason to rejoice? Because in Jesus' faithfulness, we are saved. The commitment to the Father that Jesus shows in verse 49 is the very same commitment that will take Him all the way to the cross where He will shed His blood for the salvation of His people. Every display of obedience, every display of godliness from Jesus in the Gospels is a reminder to you that you're saved because He obeyed where you would not. Praise God then for verse 49. Jesus honors his Father. He doesn't return evil for evil. At the same time, the other side of verse 49 is equally sobering. Notice the last line of the verse. Jesus says, you dishonor me. What's the connection between those two, those two clauses? On the surface, they, they, don't, they don't seem to go together. They seem disconnected. I honor my Father, and you di- dishonor me, Jesus says. What is he getting at? Well, in short, Jesus is telling the unbelieving Jews that the only way to honor God the Father is by honoring Him. By honoring Jesus. By believing His teaching and submitting to His Word. That's exactly what the crowd refuses to do. So we just said that verse 49 is encouraging, but at the same time, it's also terrifying. These unbelieving Jews are not simply insulting Jesus, they are despising the living God. They are not simply missing the point of Jesus' Bible lesson, they are missing the weight of eternity that hangs in the balance. It's it's just as Jesus said back in verse 44. They are of their father the devil. By dishonoring Jesus, this unbelieving crowd joins forces with the evil one. And so Jesus is clear on what is coming to them. Look at verse 50. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. On the one hand, verse 50 just repeats the claims of verse 49. Honoring the Father is the same as not seeking your own glory. But on the other hand, verse 50 also indicates that the unbelieving crowd will not get off scot-free in rejecting Jesus. Notice the end of the verse. God the Father seeks Jesus' glory and He He is the judge of all. Friends, that's a preview of the final day. What will God the Father do on the final day of history? He will glorify His Son as the King of kings and Lord of lords by revealing Him to be the judge of all the earth. And and at that moment, on the final day, as as the great mass of humanity stands before the throne of Christ, on that day, every person who has ever lived will give an account to Jesus Christ, to His face. 
this unbelieving crowd that insults Jesus and despises Jesus and will eventually kill Jesus, every member of this unbelieving crowd will one day look King Jesus in the face, they will see his glory, and then they will hear him say, Depart from me, for I never knew you. I've said it so many times in this series on John, and I need to say it again this morning because it's right there in the pages of the Bible. Jesus Christ is the dividing line of humanity. Right now, all across our country, all across the globe, there are forces at work that are seeking to divide people based on things that have no, no grounding in reality. Want to divide people based on ethnicity, want to divide people based on nationality, divide people based on economics. And the Bible says there's one dividing line in humanity, Jesus. You either know him or you don't. He's the great dividing line of humanity. Jesus Christ is the only way to escape the penalty of sin and be freed from the tyranny of death. Jesus Christ is the only way to God. To receive Him by faith is to live. And to reject Him is to continue in death. He's the one dividing line of humanity. So whatever else you hear from the sermon today, if you're not a Christian, if you're not repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ, this is the one message that you ought to hear. The only way to live is through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And to reject Jesus Christ is the surest way to die. I pray that you hear that if you don't know the Lord and that by His grace you would come to faith in Christ this morning. We said at the outset that the controversy between Jesus and the crowd is increasing and by verse 50 that's just undeniable. The unbelieving Jews are hurling insults at Jesus. Jesus responds with a warning of judgment. He tells them that they're going to be judged. I mean, this is, this is intense. This is an intense paragraph. If we were writing this scene, if we were writing this scene, we would probably include here some thunderclap of judgment, maybe a lightning bolt, some alarming confirmation that these people are on the road to being condemned by God. Honestly, that's what I would do if I were writing the scene. I'm glad that I'm not. If not for a thunderclap, we would at least expect Jesus to walk away and leave these people in the darkness. They just called him a demon-possessed Samaritan. You would expect him to walk away and wash his hands and say, I've had enough of you. But that's not what Jesus does. Incredibly, Jesus gives a promise. When faced with his enemies who despise him, Jesus does not return evil for evil. He holds out life through his word. Listen again, verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That's not how I would have responded. Jesus responds with patience. Just dwell on this patience for a moment. If anyone keeps my word, Jesus says, anyone, that anyone includes these very people who just called him a demon-possessed Samaritan. That anyone includes the people who will one day conspire to kill him. To even these people, Jesus holds out the promise of life. Friends, do you see the incredible, almost jaw-dropping patience of Jesus Christ? 
They insult him, and he says, if you'll keep my word, you'll live. He's patient. I struggle to be patient with my own children. Jesus is patient with his enemies. He's patient with me. He's patient with you. And why is Jesus patient with his enemies? Why doesn't he just command the earth to open and swallow these people whole? Why is he so patient? So that they will hear his promise of life and live. If anyone keeps Jesus' word, if anyone trusts in Jesus' word, then that person will not see death. They'll live. It's an incredible promise. It's rooted in Jesus' patience. They won't die. They'll live. Of course, you might be thinking, maybe you're thinking this. Surely in, in this room, someone is thinking this. You might be thinking, yeah, but everyone does die. <laughs> Every person dies. And that's true, but not everyone doesn't die in the same way. Right? Everyone does die, but people don't die in the same way. An unbeliever dies and then dies again. Their body ceases to live, and then on the final day, their soul is consigned to eternal death and hell. But the believer dies differently. The believer dies and then lives forever. The believer dies physically. His body ceases to function, but at the resurrection, he's given a glorified body, and the believer never dies. He lives forever. Do you see? Everyone dies, but not everyone dies in the same way. What makes the difference? What makes the difference? The word of Jesus Christ. That's what makes the difference. Because Christ tasted death for his people, those who belong to Christ will never see death in the ultimate and final sense. I heard a story one time about a pastor who preached a funeral, and he said from the pulpit, he said the guy in the coffin, he said his name, he's not dead, he said. He lives. And that's true. The believer dies and then lives forever. Not everyone dies the same way. And what makes the difference is the word of Christ. Because Jesus tasted death, those who belong to Christ will never see death in the ultimate and final sense. If you are a believer today, you will live and live forever. Brothers and sisters, I cannot give you a better source of hope than that good news this morning. That's a refuge for the soul in every stormy season. That's a source of hope for every trial. This is the power of Christ's word in the gospel. I don't want you to miss the connection there in verse 51. Those who keep Christ's word, his word, his word is the source of life. His word holds out the promise of defying death. So when it seems that life is slipping away, where do we turn? To Christ's word in the gospel. When the afflictions of this age are raging against us, where do we turn? To the word of Christ that gives and sustains life. Friends, this is why I stand behind this pulpit and say the same thing every Lord's day. All I have to give you is the word of God. Because it's only in the word of God that we live that's where life is found. 
For that reason, we cherish God's word. We trust God's word. We follow God's word. We read God's word. We pray from God's word. We obey God's word. We stand upon God's word. Why do we do those things? Why do we try to get the Bible into every level of our worship service? Why are we trying to get the scriptures into every single level of the church's life? Is it so that we can parade around how much biblical knowledge we know? I hope not. It's so we'll live. (laughs) You live, friends, by the word of God. If anyone keeps my word, Jesus says, he will never taste death. It's life. It's life. Yes, it's life eternal in the ultimate sense of being saved from sin. But it's also life today of walking with Christ so that his word sustains you until the great day of eternity. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means that you trust Jesus and you keep his word. That's what it means to be a Christian. And amazingly, Jesus promises us that in trusting him, we will never see death. Yes, we'll die in this life, but then we will live. Apart from Christ, you will die, but through faith in Christ, you will live forever. It's the death-defying promise of Jesus' word. These are astonishing things, are they not? It's honestly hard to grasp. The, The promise of verse 51 is nearly unfathomable. So, that should make you ask this question, how can this be true? Remember, a promise is only as good as the person who makes it. A promise is only as good as the person who makes it. So how can this promise, verse 51, those who keep my word will never see death, how can this promise, which is nearly unfathomable, how can that promise be true? Answer, because of the person who makes it. That's where we turn in the second half of the passage, in verses 52 to 59, we see the life-giving power of Jesus' deity. The life-giving power of Jesus' deity. Opposition to Jesus runs through the entire chapter, as we've already noted. So it's no surprise that the unbelieving crowd continues to be hostile towards Jesus. They're going to keep opposing him. But in a twist of irony, the opposition ends up highlighting the fundamental truth of Jesus's. Ministry. Notice again the question that the crowd asks in verse 52. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Now, before we get to their question, notice that they're trying to make an argument from the Old Testament at this point. Abraham was the father of Israel. He's the one who received God's word of promise. And the prophets, like Isaiah and Joel and Micah, also proclaimed the word of God to the people. So if you were looking for significant figures in Old Testament history, these are the people that you would pick. Abraham, the father of the nation, and the prophets who spoke God's word to the nation. And yet, these significant people died, the unbelieving Jews say. That's a rather obvious point, but their implication is equally clear. 
Jesus is insane in their minds. If Abraham died, then how in the world can Jesus' promise that those who keep his word will never see death? Abraham died. You must be crazy, Jesus. That's what they're, that's what they're saying to him. It's an argument from the Old Testament. And so based on that argument, they ask the necessary question. Look at verse 53. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? So you can, you can see the irony, can't you? I hope you can see it. Jesus is greater than Abraham. He is greater than the prophets. That's the whole point. The unbelieving crowd doesn't see the irony, but at least they understand the stakes. This entire chapter, indeed Jesus' entire ministry, indeed the entire universe hinges on Jesus' identity. Who is he? Who do you make yourself out to be? They ask him. And with profound authority, Jesus answers. They ask Jesus who he is and in in three steps or, or three phases, Jesus gives them an answer. His answer begins in verse 54 and it builds, it escalates to verse 58. So you can think of Jesus' answer as this escalating revelation of authority. From verse 54 to 58, Jesus raises the stakes multiple times in answer to who he is. Step by step, Jesus is going to show them that he's absolutely greater than Abraham and he's in fact the point of everything the prophets ever said. Step by step, Jesus is going to raise the stakes. So let, let's follow along with him and note how Jesus does this. They ask the question, who are you? Jesus is going to answer. Step one, Jesus says he is the faithful son. In verse 54, Jesus repeats his humble status before the Father. Look at verse 54. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. Now there's a small but important point in Jesus' answer. Notice back in verse 53, the Jews asked Jesus, Who do you make yourself out to be? And in verse 54, Jesus essentially says, I don't make myself to be anything. I'm not seeking my own glory. Right? It's an expression of Jesus' humility. And all through the gospel, Jesus' humility reveals his sonship. He is the son of the Father. How do we know that? Because Jesus does not exalt himself. That's how you know he's the son. He exalts the Father. The opposite, however, is true of the unbelieving crowd. They do not know God as their father. Look at verse 55. Jesus says, But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Again, notice the contrast that Jesus is making. He doesn't glorify himself, and that's how you know that he is the Son of God. The unbelieving crowd does not know God. How do we know this? Because they're always seeking to exalt themselves. They're always seeking to bring glory to themselves. Their rejection of Jesus is in large part due to pride. That they will not submit themselves to the truth of God. So that's the first step in Jesus' answer. The, the, the Jews ask him, who are you? And Jesus says, I'm the faithful son. That's his first answer. Now step two in his answer 
Jesus says he's the fulfillment of Old Testament hopes. He's the faithful son and he's the fulfillment of Old Testament hopes. In verse 56, Jesus zeroes in on Abraham. The Jews are under the impression that Jesus is at odds with Abraham. In their minds, they are children of Abraham and Jesus is a lunatic. So, in verse 56, Jesus corrects them. But he corrects them in an incredible way. Notice what Jesus says, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Pretty straightforward. Abraham rejoiced in the day of Jesus Christ. Of course, Abraham lived thousands of years before Jesus. So, so what, what is the Lord Jesus' point here in verse 56? What is Jesus claiming? Well, think about, think about Abraham's role in the unfolding of the Old Testament. Abraham was the recipient of God's covenant promise. Genesis chapter 12. God promised that he would bless Abraham with land and seed. And then through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That, that covenant promise in Genesis 12 was the bedrock of Israel's hope. That one day, God would fulfill his promise to Abraham. And through Abraham's heir, the glory of God would cover the earth as the waters would cover the sea. In the Old Testament, Abraham received that promise by faith. Genesis 15, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In a way, then, you can think about it like this. Abraham's faith gave him sight. Abraham's faith gave him sight. By faith, Abraham saw the day when God's promise would be fulfilled. Abraham did not see with physical eyes because he died, but Abraham did see with the eyes of faith. He did see with spiritual sight. And this faith, this faith was confirmed in Abraham's life in tangible ways. Remember his sacrifice of Isaac? Isaac was the child of the promise. Isaac was Abraham's heir. And yet Abraham believed that God could raise the heir from the dead if necessary. So in faith, Abraham prepared to offer up his only son. And in that moment, by faith and only by faith, Abraham saw the fulfillment of God's promise. Abraham's faith gave him sight. He saw the day of God keeping his word. He saw the day of God's covenant faithfulness. But in John 8, notice what Jesus says Abraham saw. Jesus does not say Abraham saw God's day. He does not say that Abraham saw the day of the Lord or the day of fulfillment or the day of covenant faithfulness. Jesus says, Abraham saw my day, Jesus' day. Friends, do you see the claim that Jesus is making here? All of that Old Testament history, all of that Old Testament history, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, 22, 15, all the way through, all the way through Malachi, all of that Old Testament history that's full of so many promises and so much expectation, all of that, Jesus says, is fulfilled in Him. 
And that's what Abraham saw. When Abraham stood there on the mountain and saw by faith that God could raise Isaac from the dead if necessary, in that moment, Abraham saw the day of Jesus. He saw the day of the Messiah, of God's promises fulfilled. Of course, Abraham did not see baby Jesus in the stable at Bethlehem. Abraham did not see the man Jesus on the cross. But in seeing by faith God's promise fulfilled, Abraham saw Christ. He saw the day of the Messiah. This is why Jesus says to be a child of Abraham, you must believe the gospel. There is no covenant future apart from Jesus Christ. It does not matter if you can trace your lineage back to Father Abraham. The only thing that matters is sharing Abraham's faith, not his blood. Faith that sees and rejoices in Christ as the fulfillment of God's promises. So that's the second step of Jesus' answer. Who, who, who is he? The crowd asks him. He's the faithful son, that's step one. And he's also the fulfillment of every Old Testament hope. That's step two. Now, step three, the pinnacle step, the top of the mountain. Jesus is the fullness of God in the flesh. That's the last stage of his answer. He's the fullness of God in the flesh. The unbelieving Jews are incredulous. Verse 57, they scornfully doubt Jesus' claims. Look there, verse 57. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? So again, it's that earthly perspective that we talked about. They can only think about Jesus from an earthly perspective. Jesus is maybe 32 or 33 years old. At this point, how could he possibly have seen Abraham? That's preposterous. The Jews are scornfully incredulous. It's a perfect opportunity for Jesus to clarify what he means. Except he doesn't do that. He answers with revelation. He doesn't get into an argument about the Old Testament with them. He answers with revelation. This is the high point in John's gospel on Jesus' identity. Verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. With that short sentence, Jesus identifies himself as the I am. This is an echo of God's own name. Remember the scene between God and Moses at the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3, it's on the front of your bulletin. When Moses asked God, what's your name? If I'm going to go to the people of Israel, what name should I tell them? Who are you? What's your name? What did God say? Exodus 3.14 I am who I am. That is God's name. He is the self-existent one. The eternal one. The only one. The living God. God is without beginning or end. He never was. You never refer to the God in the past tense. He never was. He never has been. God always is. Existent, complete, and perfect. That's the incomprehensible nature of the living God. And with two words, with two words, Jesus takes that incomprehensible nature for himself. I am, Jesus says. The Jews would not even dare to speak God's name. From Exodus 3. Jesus not only speaks the name. He applies it to himself. He is God in the flesh. 
all that is true of the living God is true of Jesus Christ. This not only means that the Son of God existed before Abraham, it also means that the Son of God eternally exists. There never was a time when the Son was not. He is. In fact, notice the contrast that Jesus builds between Himself and Abraham in verse 58. You never would have thought that you could worship God because of a linking verb. But we're about to. Notice the link that Jesus builds, the contrast between Abraham and himself. Look at the verb that Jesus uses for Abraham. Abraham was. It's past tense. Abraham had a beginning point and an ending point. He was and then he was not. Jesus, on the other hand, is. Period. The simple present tense verb of being. I love the Bible. The simple present tense verb of being is profoundly significant. It's even glorious. Our hope of eternal life is bound up in a being verb. I am, Jesus says. He has no beginning and no end. He is. And He ever will be. This is the kind of existence that can only apply to God. And that's precisely Jesus' point. I am, He says. And in that moment of present tense being, we live. He is God in the flesh. That's why the Jews try to kill him in verse 59. I love to talk to people who say, Jesus never claimed to be God. And I read them verse 58. And they say, yeah, that could mean a couple of different things. And then I read them verse 59 and say, they try to kill him. Because they know what he's saying. They know what he is saying. They pick up stones to kill him. Because they understand exactly what Jesus means. He's claiming to be God in the flesh. Friends, this is the truth of Jesus' person. This is his identity. The Jews ask, who are you? And Jesus answers with escalating authority. He's the faithful son. He's the fulfillment of Old Testament hopes. And he's the fullness of God in the flesh. That's his person. Now... I want you to put the two parts of the sermon together. This is why Jesus' promise in verse 51 is true. Verse 58 is the ground of verse 51. Verse 51 is true because verse 58 is true. Jesus' promise is grounded upon His person. Those who trust Christ will never see death because the Son of God is And will be. The life of God's people rests upon the life and faithfulness of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has no beginning and no end, those who belong to Him will never die. Because Jesus is God in the flesh, all things hold together in Him. The truth of His person, verse 58, grounds the promise, verse 51. So, brothers and sisters, I want you to apply, I want you to apply this connection in the everyday life of faith. I want you to be able to put this into practice as you go back out into the world tomorrow, into a world that eats faith for breakfast. I want you to be able to apply this connection. There are many days, there are many days 
when the promise of verse 51 seems impossible to be true. Your loved one dies. Your your child is diagnosed with a horrible disease. You lose your job and you've got to upend your whole life just to make ends meet. You fall into that besetting sin that would lead to death were it not for God's restraining grace that keeps calling you back to a life of repentance. There are so many days when it is hard to believe verse 51. There are so many days when it seems that death will win. How can the promise of verse 51 be true on those days? Or better put, where do we find the faith to believe verse 51 on those days? The answer, brothers and sisters, is the person of Jesus Christ. If you haven't heard anything else in the sermon, I want you to hear this point. When your faith begins to waver, the answer is not found within yourself. We cannot be the answer to our own struggling faith. We are not strong enough to uphold the promise of verse 51. Rather, on the days when it's hard to believe verse 51, we must fix our gaze on the person of Jesus Christ. This is counterintuitive, I know it, It's probably different than a lot of things that you've heard in church before. This is counterintuitive. But the answer to struggling faith is actually to think less about your own experience of faith and to think more about who Jesus is, what He has done, and what He will do. Follow the logic of the passage. Jesus grounds the promise of verse 51 on Himself, on His own person. So why? would we ever try to ground our faith in verse 51 on our own faith? It won't work. We are not as strong as we think we are. But praise God, praise God, Jesus Christ is. Period. He is the strong one. He is the faithful son who will not fail to keep you to the very end. He is the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament hopes. He is the yes and amen to every single promise in the Bible. Every single one. And he is the fullness of God in the flesh. Having given us his son, the father will also give us all things in him. Jesus grounds the promise on his person. So when your faith in the promise, begins to waver, don't look inward. Don't look inward. Look to the Son, who is. Who is even the great I Am. He will not fail to fulfill His word to you, even His death-defying word of promise. Amen? Let's pray. Father, these are such... These are such moments of weakness for us when we come face to face with the incredible glory of the gospel in your word and we struggle, God, to even grasp, let alone apply what it is that you have revealed to us in Christ Jesus. And our attempt, God, to think your thoughts after you are like, it's like little children lisping after their father. And so we pray, God, that you would please help us to understand your word And not just understand it, but to believe it and apply it and live upon the base of it. When the storms of life come, 
Father, please, please help us not to look to ourselves as the own answer for faith. Help us, God, to look to Jesus Christ, who is and who ever will be. We pray in his name. Amen.